0: Media.
1: Totally football show today Champions League part eight to 98.99 that night in Barcelona never was a bum time more squeaky. We'll be looking back on the wrath of Khan and all that plus Call it league unfinished as France call off the rest of their campaign. We'll get reaction and an update on the situation around the continent. And there's the one competition where the French are still going the Intertotally, with today Julien Laurent facing Daniel Story in the quarterfinals. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Radiohead there with this single on classic climbing up the walls. Coming together in this Totally Football show, it's a big hello to Duncan Alexander. Hello. A good tag to Raphael
0: Honigstein. Guten Tag mein Lieber James.
1: <laughs> Very kind of you. And hello there in the countryside, James Horncastle.
2: Hello, people.
1: Alright, any news from the Cotswolds, James?
2: Uh, drizzling at the moment. Yep. Um, there's some lambs in the field next door. Lambs. Frolicking. Um, had a scotch egg. Right. You know, standard fare. For breakfast? Uh, not for
1: breakfast. It's the afternoon, Duncan, remember? I okay. mean, it is
3: essentially bacon and egg. So. Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, let's move on to the week's news then, because there's been some. French government announcing on Wednesday canton are like au revoir uh, to their season government saying no sporting events will be held even behind closed doors until august at the earliest in france meaning that the football season will not be played to a conclusion league 1 as i say unfinished let's get a reaction from one concerned fan
4: well first i think it was a there was a wave of shock because we really didn't see it coming and when i say we it's not just Fans or journalists or anyone—it's also clubs, players, managers. I think everyone was was a bit shocked. Uh, although on Tuesday morning we were briefed that that was what the prime the prime minister was gonna was gonna announce, but but still, now you can see already the the fighting for how you conclude the season in like in, in terms of who goes, who achieves what and who goes where in Europe or in relegation or promotion everybody defending their club and Jean-Michel Aulas and Lyon trying to, to find a way of bringing his team back into Europe which they're not currently and and proposing some weird playoff system with three phases and whatever and and I can I can see it if it was my club I would fight to, to try to get the best outcome of this crisis as possible but yeah it's a bit messy already and, and the shock is still very much there
1: Julian Laurent so we'll hear from again shortly
4: it's a conspiracy we were
2: going to win the quadruple it was our year he sounded German right. then towards the end yeah, in <laughs> the
0: end it became Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> that was um, that was Jules's WhatsApp to you when he heard the news. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, Liga joining
1: the Eredivisie in abandoning this season. Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A, and Premier League all still intent on completing the campaign. The Bundesliga, as we heard last time, the most advanced in their plans. James, what's the situation with Serie A?
2: So Serie has put a 47-page protocol to the government scientific committee, um, basically um, a pathway to getting teams back into training. But it's been rebuffed um, and the clubs hope to be uh, resuming training, at least on kind of uh, uh, social distancing in respect of social distancing guidelines on May 4th, so next Monday. But now it looks like it will be pushed back until May 18th at the earliest. The Minister of Sport, Vincenzo Spadafora, uh, keeps saying that even if they do return to training, it doesn't mean that we will see the league uh, resume at some stage. And there does seem to be increasing pessimism um, about uh, the chances of, uh, of, of this season actually uh, being completed, even though we've seen um, the president of the Italian Football Federation, Gabriele Gravina, kind of align himself with UEFA and saying, look, we are aiming to get everything done by August 2nd, but with you know, teams yet to return to training and uh, needing, what, three weeks um, to, to, to get fit again, um, I think that's going to be very difficult to achieve.
1: Premier League has set to discuss plans this Friday on a variety of uh, options, one in particular, the Festival of Football idea, which would see all 92 remaining matches from this season being played over a six-week period at approved stadiums with a three-week pre-season proposed to allow players time to prepare. Again, I think mounting pessimism about the feasibility of it all.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's four Premier League teams who are back in training, but as with other uh, nations, you know, it's very odd, socially distanced training. It felt a little bit like the French League were trying to be sort of like Captain Oates. Do you remember from Scott of the Antarctic when he said, I'm going outside or maybe some time and <laughs> expecting everyone to follow him? And then everyone was like, yeah, on you go, Captain Oates. Um, and I think
1: not sure that's what Captain Oates' his intentions really were. Well, Duncan, I think but... if
3: you read between the <laughs> lines, he was, he, you know, it was like, I'm going to go outside, and everyone was like, "Yeah, on you go, Captain Oates. We're we're going to chill here." But um, chill. Yeah, I think yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I think um, obviously it feels like the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga in particular, are desperate to finish the seasons. But it's funny how it's shifted from we'll get it all done in June to we'll get it all done in August, and you know it's just slipping away really
1: i just a little bit stunned by that iconoclastic kind of approach to Captain Oates, who I thought was one of the, the... There are many things that one can kind of take a, a revisionist approach to, but Captain Oates's noble sacrifice in, in Antarctica, I felt, was beyond even the, me, you know, your cynicism. Well, he
3: was, he was playing everyone else, in my opinion. But you know.
1: Well, he was going to sneak round the back and go
3: back in while they were outside. And... I don't think you can rule it out. I honestly don't.
1: We'll never know of course another myth busted here on, <laughs> on totally Damn. all right hey loads of you have been getting in touch about football ads ads with the lads yeah uh, Force and not among the many saying why no mention of Nike's good the evil one it's the best well we did mention it way back at the start of the original conversation Forza not points to Cantona's au revoir as being one of the best moments au revoir Was good, wasn't it, Rafa? What's your favourite football advert?
0: Well, I like the classic one, which is of course the Brazilian national team at the airport. Um, I saw recently a very disturbing one as well. Um, don't know if you saw it on Twitter. Somebody put it up. Um, there was one done by Pepsi before the two thousand six World Cup. It's mm-hmm. unbelievably cringeworthy. The um,
1: Pepsi Football Warriors.
0: I don't think. So. No, it's not warriors. No, they go to a beer tent. But instead oh. of beer, um, Pepsi's being served, and they're taking on the locals, who are all in lederhosen, as you'd expect, in a game of football. There's Raoul there, there's, um, there's Beckham. It's unbelievably cringe cringeworthy. It's What's really so really bad, bad about it, it Rafa? Um, it's bad because the whole story doesn't make sense, you know, from a beer tent for serving Pepsi to this <laughs> impromptu football game indoors right. um, and then Bavarian lasses who are cozying up to Beckham. I mean it's yeah, it's, it's a sight to behold but one more on the, on the ad, I don't know if you know this, um, yep. there's actually yep. the, the Nutella curse, have you heard about this? Go on. So um, Nutella used to do lots of ads with German footballers and one by one for the national team, one by one, people who turned up in this ad would even never play for Germany again or play really, really badly. So it got sort of to the point where it was seen as the kiss of death if you advertise Nutella. That's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary refer
1: Huh, well, look out for that one. Uh, other adverts getting cited, the only MT and John June Lee both want some consideration of what they call the best football ad ever, Nike Park Life. You remember that guy, Richie's, Hackney Marsh's uh, tribute spot. Very nicely done, that one. Uh, Luke Freeman, meanwhile, controversially, says, I worked for a company after it helped produce Julianne's favourite advert, the Nike cage one. In their storage facility, I was gutted to find the casting documents for the ads with loads of photos of body doubles for the footballers. It appears that the footballers were barely involved in the filming. Wow. What? This is huge.
0: That's so they weren't on a ship. A month or so, apparently not, Rafa. If you can't believe ads, what what can you believe?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, any last entries for ads with the lads? Uh, I have
2: one. Um, it's a, a long lost um totty advert when he was uh he was represented by Nike, and it's unlike any other kind of advert of this genre, I think, because it's like a graphic novel. Um, It's called Il Destino di Roma, so the destiny of Rome. And it's like set in the future where this kind of football team comes from, I don't know, another planet, um, basically wins. It creates some kind of weird sort of thing where basically Rome looks like it's been completely destroyed. And then Totti comes. Totti beats this team. And they almost kind of wake up from this dystopia. And all of a sudden, everything is right again. The traffic is buzzing in Rome the Vittoriano the the wedding cake building is sort of set right the Colosseum you know is is is, is resplendent and he's, well, hopefully you know, that's still a his, ruin by James. dint of his football ability um you know well i mean it's is it's it's less of a ruin than after right. this this these these group of reprobates who you know came came down from somewhere to destroy Rome right uh, is yeah.
1: this like a graphic novel then, or is it a TV yeah. advert?
2: Well, no, it's 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 uh, it's it's a graphic novel, an animated graphic novel. In that, it's, it's oh, uh, right. Okay, it's, so it's an animation. Yes, it is. Right.
1: One last tweet for now. This one's from Sam White and Duncan. It's for you. Uh, Sam says, "Have you ever done a flip reverse where Gerard goes to Chelsea? I've been playing it over in my mind all day. Have we ever done that one? We've we? not done that one.
3: That sounds like a possibility."
1: All right. On a day when we don't have as much red-hot content as we do today, we'll definitely think about wheeling that one in, Sam White. But next up, it's quarterfinal time in the quiz, and it's a biggie. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Huge day in the Totally Monday. Alvaro produced a Nevin Ending story. Today, we find out who's going to be meeting the Basque brawler in the semi-finals.
5: first he came from behind to see up rapper honigstein in round one and in so doing shared a little bit too much information about his private life ah uh. yes clive that is the sound of a pundit who has just quizzed himself that is the sound of daniel story
1: wow daniel story <sighs> yes james right. will you be cleaning up again today i guess is the question
6: uh yeah yeah well let's see eh.
1: Let's get straight on and meet your opponent.
5: And his opponent doing all he can to subvert national stereotypes about French sides choking on the big stage. It is the return of the PS genius, Julien
1: Juju Laurent. Yes, welcome back, Jules.
4: Welcome back, everyone. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, quarterfinals Paris banter. I bet you're praying you don't get a first round lead.
4: Well, you know, we, there was a time where we actually qualified for the semifinals right. a very, very long time ago, but I'm the underdog today. I, I, I know it. Daniel is so strong and so amazing and <laughs> uh, I, I can't see him losing at all. So let's see. Let's see.
1: You've got to be both answering questions, first of all, on specialist topics. What have you chosen, Jules?
4: Uh, France at the Euro 2000s.
1: Ah, nice. OK. And uh, Daniel, what's yours? Uh,
6: it's current Premier League stadia. Right.
1: And you're up first, Daniel, so if you're ready,
0: we'll begin. Yes.
1: Question one on current Premier League grounds. Which current Premier League ground hosted a test cricket match?
6: Ooh. um, Good question. Bramall Lane? Is correct.
1: Do you know what the match was? Uh, No. It was England against Australia in 1902. So I'm wondering how on earth you managed to get Bramall Lane from that.
6: Uh, I just know that Yorkshire cricket used to play there. Okay. So, semi-educated guess.
1: Excellent. Question two. If you were getting off the train at Falmer Station, which Premier League ground would you be heading to?
6: Uh, The Amex Brighton.
1: That's correct. Question three. Which current Premier League ground features stands called the Barclay stand, the Gerald stand and the Geoffrey Watling stand? Uh, That's Carrow Road, Norwich. It is. Question four. Seven current Premier League teams now play in grounds built since the start of the Premier League in 1992 – But of these seven clubs, which has been playing in one of these new grounds for the
6: longest? Hmm. Uh, I think it's either Bournemouth or Southampton. Uh, I'm going to say Bournemouth.
1: Is incorrect. It is Southampton. They've Ah. been at St Mary's. Since 2001. question five then anfield is one of a number of grounds with a cop stand named after the spy on cop but in which country is spy on cop originally located
6: uh, south africa
1: is correct daniel mm. of course scene of a battle involving the british army during the boer war that means that you have a score of four out of five at the end of your specialist round mm-hmm good All right then, let's see if Jules can match that or better it, as he tackles questions on France at Euro 2000. Jules, who was the most capped player in the French squad at the start of the tournament?
4: Um, I would
1: say Didier Deschamps. Is correct. Question two. Immediately after the tournament, several players in the France squad moved clubs, but who was the only one to move back to a French club from abroad?
4: Wow, okay. uh, He wasn't abroad, he moved back to Europe. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, Could he have been. uh, Got all day, uh, haven't we? uh, Sorry, come on. Got all day, have not we, Jules? I need to go through the 23 plays no. in my head before finding no, the one George. that. No, sorry. Uh, let, me, let me go for a guess. Let me for, go for a guess. So he was playing abroad and came back playing for France. I'll go for you and Miku? No, it was Nicolas Anelka. Oh,
1: God. Who went from Real Madrid to Paris Saint Germain. Yeah, of no course. No reason you course. would have known that, of course. Yes. Question that was three. Tough. Who was sent off for Portugal against France in their semi final? Abel Xavier? No, it was Nuno Gomez. Question four. After winning the tournament, what did Roger Lemaire have in common with the man who was the winning coach for France in 1984, Michel Hidalgo?
4: What did um, they both... Did they used to both be assistant of the former national team head coach?
1: That is absolutely correct. Question five then. This to remain just one point. Behind Daniel's story. Which French player elbowed Fabio Cannavaro in the final, prompting the exasperated Italian to declare, I thought he had become a man, but he's remained a
4: horse. <laughs> what? Um, uh, Who
1: elbowed Cannavaro in
4: the final? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did, like Arsene Wenger used to say, I didn't see this one, to be fair, uh, <laughs> I didn't see it at all. I would go for Christophe Dugarry.
1: No, it was Marcel Desailly. Oh, man. Which means that at the end of your specialist round, you've scored deux points. Jules, what
4: happened? Oh, it was, they were really tough questions. Uh, Nuno Gomez, I should have known really the red cards. And I... I thought about Xavier because it was his handball for the penalty of Zidane. I thought it was a second yellow and then it was wrong. And then I'd never heard of the Italian saying that on Marcel Desailly and I can't remember Desailly elbowing Cannavaro at all. And then I can't remember the other one that got wrong. Oh, yeah, Anelka coming back, yeah. You left yourself
1: a mountain to climb.
4: Yeah, I think he's done now.
1: (laughs) We'll see. We'll see because there have been major upsets in the general knowledge round. Of course, before, will we have another one today? We'll find out at the end... Of this totally football show. See you, chaps, later on. Well, there you go. It looks like uh, another of our Euro correspondents could be making an early exit. Yeah,
2: letting the side down, Jules. There, he talks a good game, um, but you know, I mean, let's hope Neymar comes back for the for the second leg from you know whatever right. his sister's party in Rio or whatever whatever was stopping Jules from from performing in that in that first leg.
1: We'll find out later on, James. Mm. The good news is we've got something pretty special to fill the time. Until then, it is Chapter 8 of our Champions League story, and it is one of the craziest tales of all.
0: I'm José Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special.
1: Understood, José. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. <laughs> Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T and C's at paddypower.com, 18plusbgumballaware.org.
5: On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Beckham into Sheringham and Solskjaer has won it!
0: And Bayern Champions League
1: 98-99. We all know how it finished. But how did those the most miraculous 23 seconds in football history come about? What else happened that season? And how exactly is this Act in Barcelona remembered in Germany? The 8th Champions League campaign got underway in September 1998 with no change in format. For the second year, eight non-champions were allowed in, Man United amongst them. And once again, only the six group winners were guaranteed knockout football, with just two runners-up joining them. A concern for United, given that they were drawn in a group with Bromby, Barcelona and Bayern Munich. We'll talk about Sir Alex Ferguson's side soon enough, but who else? was around that year. Well, Ajax were in it again, but having won the competition just three and a half years before, they finished bottom of their group. There was PSV with the 22-year-old Ruud van Nisseroy banging in the goals, five goals for the Dutchman, although his side was eliminated in the group stage. Olympiakos were there and they went a bit further, all the way to the quarterfinals before being put out by Juventus. One of those quirky sides that you like so much, James, Olympiakos.
2: Yes. I mean, I think you would look at their group, James, and say, well, one of them was going to get out because it was fairly balanced with Croatia Zagreb. I imagine that's uh, Dinamo. Porto, who still had the great striker of the 1990s, Mario Yardel. Um, And Ajax, who, uh, as you mentioned, previously finished bottom, would have their worst season, James, since 1965. Uh, Olympiacos ended up coming out on top of that group they only lost once and of course this was very much the team that uh, Otto Rehagel would draw from for his Euro 2004 triumph with Stelius Janakopoulos driving through midfield if you look back on match day one of Group A I know you checked this out on YouTube last night um, in terms of research but that great game against Porto which really set the tone uh, for them where you had Zlatko Zivic, you know one of the great um Slovenian players who uh, Bizarrely is is one of the few players who can actually you know Porto and Benfica fans love because he did it for them uh, him and Yardel they had they had Porto 2-0 up James with 8 minutes to go but the Greeks the Greeks would not go quietly into the night because Yanakopoulos in the 86th minute and Gogic who I must say is one of those strikers, as we've mentioned over the course of this run of, uh, of episodes, is, is one of those bizarre names that we've lost all kind of uh, sight of. He scored 30 goals for Olympiacos um, that season. Right. He got them in an 89th-minute equaliser, and they never looked back from there, James. Even when they played Juventus in the quarterfinals, they were playing in Athens, which is, of course, where Juventus suffered one of their worst nights against Hamburg in the European Cup when Felix Magath. Scored and Dino's off needed an eye test.
1: Uh, what's Stelios Janikopoulos doing now?
2: He's putting out fires, uh, James. Um, that's, that's the last I heard. Right. I Googled him. He's a fireman. Um, he is a fireman, yes.
1: Right, that's remarkable.
2: Talented on the pole and with the hydrant. Nice, with the
1: hose. The- Good. <laughs> Working with hose. Nice. Okay. what about Arsenal? They were making their first appearance in the tournament, Duncan.
3: Yeah, and they had made the decision to play at Wembley, which caused a bit of controversy. You might remember at this time... Uh, UEFA insisted on big advertising hoardings. It was pre the kind of animated LED modern hoardings. So they had these big, big hoardings, which at Highbury made a big difference because it was never the biggest ground anyway. Um, but one of the reasons they did it as well was to kind of prove to their investors and bankers that they could attract, you know, 60,000, 70,000 fans to, uh, to games because they wanted to, you know, push on with the, to build the Emirates. Um, but it didn't work out for them. Um, across the two seasons they played, there. they only won two of their six home games. And the other thing with Arsenal in this season, which is quite amusing, is it's kind of the first season where the internet still exists for. So you can actually go back and look at really early Arsenal kind of websites and see, like, you know, contemporary reaction. And the two things they were angry about, about the Champions League this season, were A, they had drawn... There were only eight teams in the Champions League that season where Bergkamp couldn't go away to because obviously he wouldn't fly. So they were too far away. Arsenal drew two of those eight teams in their group so they had um, uh, Dinamo Kiev and Panathinaikos so Bergkamp was ruled out of those two matches um, and the other thing that they really lost the plot about was uh, in September ITV chose to show Manchester United's game uh, the second group game uh, even in London so this is pre multi-channel TV this is pre BT Sport goals show um, just one ITV channel Uh, and even if you lived in London, you had to watch Manchester United instead of Arsenal. I think this is where a lot of the kind of, you know, anyone but United kind of uh, thing came from, particularly the following season when it was followed up by, and we should reiterate it wasn't their decision, but United, uh, you know, not playing in the FA Cup, so it was quite a tumultuous time.
1: One other issue was the fact they had to ground share at Wembley with the Spice Girls, with the fixtures having to be rearranged around uh, the Spice Girls concerts.
3: Panathinaikos and Eichels couldn't play their first game at home because the Rolling Stones were playing at the Olympic Stadium. But it turned out Arsenal were the team that couldn't get any satisfaction in that group. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Winners of Arsenal's group with Dynamo Kiev, who, as we mentioned last week, had thrilled everybody the previous season would go even further this time around. Andrei Shevchenko in what was his last season with Lobanovsky's side absolutely tearing through the opposition. His speed, his deadly finishing. He finished joint top scorer in the competition along with Dwight York before making that move to Milan in the summer of 1999. Dinamo Kiev making it all the way to the semi finals and putting out the champions Real Madrid on the way in the quarter finals with three goals from Shevchenko. But their run was to come to an end when they faced Bayern Munich.
3: Keep my mind happy, it's over.
1: Let's talk Bayern then, Rafa. Finalists, of course, such a big part of this story. And that music, by the way, number one in the autumn of 98, uh, Flugzeuger im Bach by Herbert Grünemeyer, airplanes in the belly. Yes. What was going on there? Uh, I'm not
0: sure.
2: Is that like so if, you've got, if you've got butterflies in your stomach, but this is this is an escalation even of that. You're like this super my, anxious. You've got m- some kind of Seven.
1: Nice. That was number one. Do you remember that? Uh, was that a big song for you?
0: Um, no, not for me personally, no. But I used to bump into Herbert Grunemeyer all the time because he lived in Belses Park. Not far from where I live, Really, It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm.
1: Let's talk about Bayern Munich, Rafa. Like Man United, they'd also been waiting decades for a European crown. Like Man United, they were also chasing a treble this season.
0: They were, and this was the first season of Ottmar Hitzfeld, who had walked away from Borussia Dortmund after winning the 97 Champions League, had become a sporting director, and Bayern snatched him. Uh, or, or persuaded him to return to the bench in 98. And the first season was a really, really, really good one um, for Bayern. They were doing really well. They got through the group stage, a tricky group stage, which of course featured Man United and Barcelona. Um, two draws, again, Man, Man United, but they beat Barcelona twice. Um, if you want to watch one of the, the funniest uh, Peter Schmeicher goalkeeping mistakes, it's from the uh, game in Munich where Teddy Sheringham scored an 88th minute own goal Uh, to let Bayern escape with a um, lucky, I should say, 2-2 draw. But by the time they are into sort of the latter stages of the competition, uh, they get a little bit lucky because they have Kaiserslautern, um, German uh, winners of the season before, in the um, quarterfinals and um, have no problem at all defeating them 6 0 in aggregate. And then they go to Kiev and uh, it's widely assumed or expected to be a really, really difficult game. And it was, Rafa. And it was. It was an unbelievable game. Um, Bayern were played off the park for large spells of the, uh, of the first leg. Um, it was the Rebrov-Shevchenko combination uh, up front. Really, really young Shevchenko, who looks as if he's at sort of 17 playing the game. No stubble whatsoever. And um, they take a two in lead and Bayern get a really, really lucky 2-1 uh, with Tarnat scoring from like 40 metres. The ball somehow kind of finds its way into the net. I'm not sure how. And then they go 3-1 up, uh, Dinamo after the after the break. And then Bayern come back with a fantastic free kick from Stefan Effenberg. Uh, it's really worth checking that one out. And then two minutes from from time, they find an equaliser in typical fashion where Karsten Janka is just this big hulky figure who just somehow kind of wriggles his way through and then why he's falling that was sort of his trademark finish he's always falling when he shoots the ball just kind of squeezes it in for a 3-3 draw which of course was a fantastic result um but it strikes you just how how close Bayern were to suffering a really bad defeat and and also how heavy the pitch was um this was in April but for some reason the pitch in in Kiev is is it looks like it's sort of the middle of November at various moments in time Um, players slip just as they're shooting or trying to clear the ball and it looked very 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 heavy.
1: Dinamo Kiev so close as you say to actually going through to the final Akbar Chowdhury says how different a final would it have been if Kiev had made it through that's a question for you.
0: Yeah it would have been very different and a lot less painful for me.
1: Well, Bayern anyway sealed their place in the final with a 1 0 win over Dina Mukhev in the second leg with a a glorious goal from that Mario Basler and Oliver Kahn, shutting down Sheva and Rebrov. So it had been an eventful summer at Old Trafford uh, with talk of a multi million pound, 562 million I think the figure, takeover by Rupert Murdoch uh, in the air for the Red Devils. A move as well by the board in August of that season to sell Oligona Solskjaer to Spurs that uh, came apart at the last minute. What might have been? United anyway were once more questing for that elusive European glory and they went at this competition. All guns blazing. Rob Smythe writes an excellent profile of this United season on Eurosport. And he makes the point that United had had an extended adolescence in the tournament. Humiliated in 93-94. 94-95 saw them make it to the semi-finalists. Frustrated the following year against Real Madrid. And he quotes David Beckham as saying that it was almost like learning football all over again. Well, this time around, this was the season when they really matriculated not just the final, so many classic performances right through this campaign.
3: Yeah, it's a strange campaign because they won the competition without losing a game, which is actually rarer than you think. Um, in fact, the last team to do it in the Champions League were United in oh seven oh eight, so it doesn't happen that often. Um, and they only won five of their 11 games, but they're A, they were in a particularly hard group, as we've discussed. In some senses, that's what made this such a memorable campaign. It wasn't like they just barreled through the competition, not, you know, destroying teams as they went. They, you know, every game there was something on it. You know, three three at home to Barcelona, three three away to Barcelona. There were so many three threes in this Champions League. Um, and as Rafa touched upon earlier, the the buy and away game two two. I mean, he said. You know, if you want to see a Schmeichel error, watch the second Bayern goal. If you want to see a lot of Schmeichel errors, watch Manchester United in the Champions League. I mean, Schmeichel, pretty much in every game, makes howlers. And you know, there's talk of even in the final where the players were very disappointed in his, you know, his antics for the goal. And he, you know, obviously he that was his last ever match for the club. He it, it really was kind of wringing the the last of Schmeichel uh, ability out of him, and he kind of had run out of steam a little bit. But on the flip side. Watching these goals again. David Beckham, has anyone ever played as well as Beckham did in this season? I mean, this was obviously the season after the 98 World Cup where he'd come for so much abuse from the press and and opposing fans, but every cross he put in is just incredible. You know, so many of United's goals came from him whipping the ball in. You know, Dwight York got a lot of headers. You know, Dwight York, unusually, the only player in Premier League history to have scored eight or more headers in uh, more than one season. So he was, you know, probably the most forgotten aerial. Uh, threat in, in the game but yeah I mean the the Beckham crossing was unbelievable in game after game.
1: The quarterfinals with the Inter a great example of that two York headers from Beckham crosses and Schmeichel in this game actually being pretty decisive.
2: Yeah I mean this was billed as a grudge match because it was the first time that Beckham was going to meet Diego Simeone after the, uh, the 98 World Cup and United's ploy was just to get the ball to Beckham and uh, whip it in and he gave Aaron Vinter an absolute torrid time Vinter on uh, the left-hand side of of Inter's defence and pulled them all over the place just the range of crossing
5: It's in towards right
2: On for the first goal um, York's first header um, again the ball kind of uh, bounces twice and he just hits it on the run and it's a real kind of delicate cross as well, Real, su- there's a real subtlety about it and then just some of the other chances that he created from crossing from deeper which you know, didn't end up with goals but into just, uh, particularly at Old Trafford, had a real hard time of it and I uh, you know Inter were a bit of a basket case in that they went through three managers that season um, you have Luchescu Castellini Roy Hodgson um, but they finished top of their group ahead of the whole Israel Madrid uh, Baggio had put in an incredible performance um, against them at San Siro with two goals in the last five minutes to to get a 3-1 win And again, you look at the array of attacking talent, particularly at San Siro, I think Ronaldo comes back and plays uh, some part in that. You've got players coming off the bench like Andrea Pirlo, Young Pirlo, Ventola as well, who uh, made an impact in that game. And um, just to touch on what Duncan was saying about uh, Schmeichel and how many 3-3s were in this competition, United go behind (laughs) an awful lot in both the group stage... Knockout stage, they go behind twice as we'll get to to Juventus, both at Old Trafford and in, in Turin, and they go behind in the final as well, so I think that's one of the aspects that made it such a thrilling campaign, as well as just how, uh, just look at the teams that they beat, um, you know, in terms of prestige, Barca, Inter, Juventus, Bayern, I mean... Mm.
3: Compare it to some of, you know, I mean, not singling out Nottingham Forest, they're friends of the podcast, but, you know, when they won it in 1980, it was Oster, Argus, <laughs> Potesti, Dinamo Berlin, Ajax and Hamburg, but, you know, even so. One other thing about the Inter game, which was, was good, I thought, was that David Beckham was the youngest player in either starting level, and he was almost 24 at that point. And, you know, this is definitely not the era of Mbappe and Haaland. You know, that it was just <laughs> teams of, like, seasoned pros going head-to-head. It was very different.
1: Coming from behind was such a thing, not just in the Champions League for United that year. They managed to return from losing positions to win or draw in 17 matches in that triple winning season. Well, Next up anyway, after dispatching Inter were Juventus for the third season in a row. And the final is what remains legendary for Man United fans and many football fans from this season. But the second leg of the semi-final in Turin against Juve is probably the best performance of this campaign. Yeah, I think it's
2: uh, an epic night. Um, Andy Mitton, who follows United, wrote a piece for the Athletic a couple of weeks ago about how he, kind of, and other United fans hold it in higher esteem than what happened at the Camp Nou in the in the final. In terms of United, seem to have been building towards a performance like that. But to have gone behind, as I said to that, Antonio Conte goal uh, back when Conte's hair was very was was thinning uh, at a rapid rate at Old Trafford, and then t- and Giggs scores a ninety third minute equaliser um, at Old Trafford, and then for them to go behind two 0 down, three um, one a- aggregate after eight minutes with Inzaghi just doing the most Inzaghi things, you know, be it bundling in a, a goal from point-blank range at the far post to then hitting a shot which kicks up off Yapstam's boot and goes over Peter Schmeichel.
5: The first was a poacher's goal. The second needed some luck. Manchester United need a minor miracle now.
2: And this was the team that had always been their benchmark, as we've, we've talked about before on this. You had this as Ferguson called him, the young and inexperienced Carlo Ancelotti, um, who'd come in for Marcello Lippi in, in February. Um, yeah, Lippi, who, in, in Ferguson's words, kind of uh, knew everything there was to know about European football. Look, it was a, a Juventus side that I think would finish sixth in the league. They went into this game on the back of a loss against Empoli. But it was also a team that still had the World Player of the Year, the Ballon d'Or winners Zinedine Zidane and... Seem to have raised its game for particularly the first leg at Old Trafford, which was seen as the best performance under Ancelotti. Um, but I mean, to see the number of chances that United create, um, you know, obviously this goes down in history as the Roy Keane game. Um, you know, after he picks up that yellow card, will miss the final and doesn't let it affect his performance. In fact, he seems to seems to derive something from it, and I think one of the you know, great images of this Champions League campaign is that kind of slow-mo action replay side on of Keane leaping for that glancing header, beating Peruzzi and putting it in the corner.
3: And I think it's quite key that United managed to get back to 2-2 quite early. It was 34 minutes because, you know, such had been the struggles against Juve throughout the 90s that when they went 2 nil up, everyone was like, well, here we go again. It was, you know, they were psychologically so strong in that game. And, you know, I guess they showed that again in the final in a different way.
2: You know, one of the great pieces of commentary at the end of it from Clive Tildesley, uh, which was. Full speed ahead, Barcelona! <laughs> which, I
0: don't know, I, I particularly liked. I'm José Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special.
1: Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 You are my fire, the one
0: desire.
1: 26th of May 1999, as uh, youngsters all over the world piled into record shops to buy the number one record in England, Germany, Spain, all over Europe indeed. James, which was? I mean, it's
2: a great song. It's uh, I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. What that and it is, it's still um, still a source of great speculation.
1: In the football, this was the first Champions League final without a Serie outside. For eight years, of course, United had knocked them all out. And tens of thousands of their supporters were there in the Catalan capital, ready for the game. This was the final part of a 11-day trilogy for United. They'd beaten Spurs at Old Trafford back on the 16th of May to win the Premier League title, just ahead of Arsenal, one point ahead of the Gunners. Four days before the Champions League final, they'd then done Newcastle, 2-0 in the FA Cup final, and now it was all about whether they could become the first side to do the treble. Prior to kick-off, the fans at the camp now were treated to something special. Opera singer Montserrat Caballé loaded on the back of a golf cart and ferried around the pitch while she performed a live version of her duet with Freddie Mercury, Barcelona. Freddie doing his bits up on the big screen. An appropriate start for a match where someone came back from the dead and that truly wasn't over <laughs> until the fat lady had sung. Oh.
2: Such a beautiful horizon.
3: Obviously, Skulls and Keane both suspended for United, which is a big loss. So the week leading up to the final was shrouded with mystery on what Ferguson would do. And to the surprise of everyone, he brought in Jesper Blomkvist at left midfield, shoved Giggs over to the right-ish, um, and put Beckham alongside Nicky Butt in the middle. Um now position a lot of people he'd have, always
2: wanted to play.
3: Well, this was the thing. He'd been saying it before, then and after. But And I think a lot of people look back at how United struggled for a lot of that game and think, well, Beckham in midfield didn't work. But he was probably their best player. He was the most effective United player for the whole 90 minutes. So I don't think that was the weakness. It was Bayern who took the early lead, though. Barely four minutes played, Rafa.
0: Yeah, Mario Basso with a free kick. Um, suspicions um, about... Uh, Schmeichel, uh, who never really reacts until the ball is in the net. It was um, a wonderful start-up. We should also mention that Bayern, of course, missed, missed two big players themselves. Um, they had been missing them for quite a while, so not a not a big surprise. But Lisa Razou on the left, um, really influential player. And um, Giovanni Elba, who dropped his cruciate ligament earlier that season. Uh, but they, I think they did dominate midfield. I'm not entirely sure that Beckham was. United's best player. I mean, if he was, I think that says a lot about the rest of the United players. Who I mean, you say really they were missing well. a
2: lot of big players, Raf, but Karsten Janka, six foot four. Uh, I mean, one of the most technically gifted footballers that European football has ever seen. Am I right?
0: <laughs> it's very harsh. Very <laughs> what harsh. about
1: the kit, Rafa? Yeah, the
2: kit, the
0: kit was kit. that weird silvery thing, which um, I'm not entirely sure why Bayern were playing uh, in a kit that season. They did never played um, in a kid like that before or after. And never will again, I imagine. It didn't help on the occasion. It didn't.
1: Still, for all that, they had control of the game. United had probably more of the possession, but creating few real chances, if any. Uh, Andy Cole stabbing the ball wide. There was a Beckham free kick that fizzed past the post. Gets to half-time with Bayern in command. And the second half starts with... uh, more positive play from the Bavarians.
0: Yeah, they weren't and They were much closer, I think, to scoring a second than United equalising. I mean, they had, you're right, they had sort of half chances and watching the game in the stands, uh, in the severely outnumbered Bayern section, which even in the section had lots of United fans, um, you you did never feel 100% secure because they were dangerous on the flanks and Tarnat had real problems uh, with, with Giggs because Giggs is a much better footballer. But um, Bayern had much better chances. I would love to see the XG on that.
3: Um, yeah, United finished around 2.3 and Bayern with 1.5. But obviously, the vast majority of United's came in injury time. So overall, it's a pretty even game in terms of chances. But obviously, Bayern did hit the bar with that overhead kick towards the end of the game, and 2 0 would have mm. been game set and match.
1: Mehmet Scholl as well, hitting the post before the, uh, the
2: final match. Mehmet Scholl, final
3: famously a man who released mixtapes in the early 2000s with bands like the Beta Band on it. It was uh, kind of the Pat Nevin of Germany.
1: One of the big chances for Bayern in the second half, uh, Mario Basler spotting Schmeichel off his line. He tries to chip him from the halfway line and you had the United Keeper scrambling back only to see it fly just over the bar anyway. So Alex Ferguson is thinking of a change. Enter the FA Cup final hero, Teddy Sheringham, who comes on for Blomquist. interesting quotes from Sheringham after the fact. He says, I remember Sir Alex came up to me at halftime and said, I'm gonna keep it the same, but make sure you're ready. So I didn't want our team to score in the next ten or fifteen minutes. I wanted them to stay one nil down so I would have the chance to come on and score in the Champions League final.
3: The famous Teddy Sheringham teamsmanship there.
1: Brilliant <laughs> Ten minutes to go though, and Teddy hasn't scored. And for Bayern fans like Raphael Honigstein enjoying that one-nil lead, you can see the trophy creeping closer, Raphael. You must have been feeling
0: pretty good. I was feeling pretty good about myself, yeah.
1: Raphael, were
2: you giving right. some of the United fans some stick? Were you sort of you know, <laughs> some sort of hubris kind of like ha ah, take that? Ha. Ah.
0: No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. It was um it was a very um sporting Atmosphere inside the ground, uh, despite Murray Basler's attempt to wind up a few Man United fans with a famous way from a corner not long before.
1: Ten minutes to go, it's still 1-0. And Ferguson decides to introduce Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who does start to make a bit of an impact. But, you know, we talk about the substitutions from Sir Alex Ferguson. In Germany, Rafa, do they look at the, the opposite moves, the fact that Matthias came off... For Torsten Fink.
0: Yeah, I mean that substitution was hugely controversial for, for a number of reasons. First of all, because Hitzfeld later said, Well, Matthias had signalled that he was injured. Matthias then denied that, saying he was a bit tired but could have could have gone on to play. Um, Thomas Helmer the defender who'd won the Euros uh, with Germany '96 was expected to come on for Mateus, but didn't, as Hitzfeld chose another midfielder, in Torsten Fink. And Torsten Fink, crucially, of course, is the guy that mishits the clearance mm. that immediately precedes United's equaliser. If he just hits the ball properly, none of this happens. Which is yeah. why, up until today, I still bear a bit of a grudge against Torsten Fink.
3: Makes you think twice. Yeah, yeah. Fink's can only get better. Think off.
0: <laughs>
3: well, for whatever
1: reason, whether it was Mateus' exit or Fink coming on or Solskjaer coming on or just fatigue or nerves, the match had now undergone a real change. We've reached the 90th minute though, and UEFA are already making preparations to present the trophy to Bayern Munich. Man United have won a late, late corner. David Beckham goes over to take it, looks over and, as he reveals afterwards, sees them carrying the cup down to the field, ready for the presentation with Bayern colours on it. But United have a corner. And what's this? Schmeichel is running upfield.
3: And obviously Ferguson at half-time had done his famous speech where he'd said to the United players, you know, if you lose the game, you'll have to walk past the European Cup and you won't be able to touch it. So that only added to to the drama, I think. But yeah, Schmeichel comes up for the corner and... Kind of creates the corner by doing that thing goalies do, but when they go up for corners by being a massive and in the way. And he didn't touch the ball. In fact, he'd never touch the ball again as a United player. But um, as uh, Rafa described, the uh, the clearance was poor, and uh, Giggs had a real swinger of a shot with his right foot, which was going wide. And it's still it's still a really strange goal to watch because sharing him kind of just kind of half turns and guides it in off his sock. It's if you tried to do that hundred times, I reckon you'd fail ninety-eight or ninety-nine times. It was
2: also like know. one of the weird things that I felt re-watching that was yes, Torsten Fink should just put his foot through it and clear the ball. But as Giggs takes that shot, you have like I think it's Mehmet Scholl is on Sheringham and he starts backing away from the shot as though he's like getting out of the way of it going wide. And instead, it just allows Sheringham all the time to just swing at it and put it in. And then you see Khan literally as he slides down, putting his hands up, claiming offside. And uh, I just felt that even if that had gone to extra time at this point, Bayern were done. I mean, like, for that corner kick, you see Effenberg put the ball out and Effenberg's cheeks red. He looks cooked. And Bayern just looked... like I think there was only going to be one winner. Maybe not however many seconds later... But it felt the momentum was definitely with with uh, with United. As the equaliser goes in,
1: Clive Tilton says,
5: "Name on the trophy."
1: Rafa, Jay were Bayern bottling it?
0: Of- yeah, I think you have to say that you're. Um, if you can't defend corners, um, historically, I, I I see here from the Independent article on this game where the XG comes from, that corners only scored two to three percent of the time. Yeah. So, and yet yeah. you
1: had two, 23 seconds apart, turning the biggest game in the for football team. For the listeners team. who can't see Rafa at the moment, he, he looks like he's reliving. He looked just
0: uh, as cooked as Stefan Effenberg did in the last minute. <laughs> yeah. For the
1: listeners who can see Rafa at the moment, can I ask what kind of voyeuristic activity <laughs> are you up to?
0: Well,
1: Alright, so now we're heading for extra time, but there is that sensation that momentum has swung decisively at the camp now.
0: I don't think that's fair, actually. Because everybody no. expects, no, momentum doesn't change if there's a last-minute equalise. Everybody just expects okay. f- for extra time to come around well, and maybe think penalties. Think... Nobody thinks, oh, yes, of course, they will score a second one. It's impossible. Uh, all
1: right, that's fair, Rafa. Also, because Steve McLaren on the bench is now saying to Sir Alex Ferguson, calm down, calm down. We need to make some changes to the team. We've got extra time. Why didn't they
0: back. listen to him? And we, and we,
1: <laughs> we've, we've completely unbalanced the team by throwing on all our forwards. And Sir Alex apparently turns to him and says, this game's not over yet.
3: Yeah. I mean, talking of Manchester United managers being confident, Ron Atkinson, who was co-commentating with, with Tilsley, when Solskjaer came on, he had a really good chance early on, a header. And and big Ron says, if United get one here, they, they're going to go on and win it. So he, he saw right. the momentum swing before even the equaliser.
1: <laughs> well, Tilsley too goes, can United score? They always score. And lo and behold, they did. So Bayern Munich now have the kickoff. And there's, what, two minutes played already of the three that have been allowed, as time added on, to the 90. They've seen the trophy that was within their hands almost, taken away, move away again, and it looks like extra time. And then this happens. Barely 25 seconds of game time had elapsed since United had found an equaliser. This.
5: Is this their moment? Beckham into Shearing.
0: The noise when those two goals are being scored, followed by the third noise of the game being finished, is still to this day one of the most moving, but in a, in a horrible way, atmospheres and noises I've ever heard in a stadium. And it just added to that feeling that you're just in the middle of some kind of natural catastrophe, um, just being completely overwhelmed by, by the situation. It was, it was really, really terrible. Karsin
1: Janka, meantime, weeping uncontrollably on the field. Later, the story is he was physically sick when he saw the goals replayed on television.
0: I don't know about that, but I know that... Yeah. Um, what I <laughs> do know work, is that they that? apparently had, had an unbelievable party in the team hotel getting absolutely smashed off their faces um, with lots of players getting yeah completely, completely drunk.
1: That makes more sense. <coughs>
0: And Thomas Helmer, of course, reacting after the final whistle with a double stinky finger, as we call it, in the direction of Opmer Hitzfeld. He was so upset that he didn't come on. Flipped him the, the double finger, yeah.
1: So, post the game and in the months and, and years that followed, what, what's been the verdict? Was it all about the substitutions? Was it about Bayern's mentality? Was it about Torsten Fink not clearing the, the ball properly? Who, who's been the guilty party for Germans?
0: Well, I think two things are important to understand. One is that the game has gone down sort of in, in Bayern mythology as the game that then helped them get over the line two years later. Uh, they, they used it as a motivational tool. A lot of people at the time said Bayern will not come back from this. This whole team will break apart. The whole club will break apart. But they rallied and they managed to turn things around. They got very unlucky in 2000 where they were probably the best team in, uh, in Europe. And then in 2001, just got over the line in the, in the final against Valencia. But I think because of that, 1999 has just seen some some kind of almost sort of antique catastrophe devised by the gods that no one could really do anything about. Of course, you can, you know, micro-analyze all these situations. Scholl not being in the right spot, as James said. Fink certainly misshitting the ball. Hitzfeld getting the substitutions wrong. But I think it's just seen as one of those one in a million games that will never happen again. And therefore, you can't really single out anyone for for any real blame.
1: Fair enough. Although they weren't one in a million for United. As we mentioned, this is what they did all the time, come from behind again and again and again. And of all the trademarks of Sir Alex Ferguson's reign there, I think that was uh, possibly the, the greatest. And this was the greatest example of it to win not just win a game like this with two corners right at the death after the 90, but to win a Champions League final like this, but to win as well the treble with this. Just extraordinary. And Fergie summing it up so famously at the end, football, a eh? Bloody hell.
0: It's just a lovely story of Otmar Hitzfeld and Ferguson bumping into each other after the game and the uh, bowels of the, uh, of the new camp and just looking at each other and just... an embracing each other without any, any words being said. And I think that kind of summed up the, the moment.
1: Sir Alex was to go on to get a knighthood, of course. Soon afterwards, first English champions since the ban that followed the uh, Heisel disaster. And uh, Sir Alex, I think, uh, whilst blame may not be apportioned in Germany, credit in England goes to him for his substitutions. Would you say that these were the best pair of substitutions ever?
3: Yeah, Just in the the sense that they both scored, you know, as we said, Solskjaer won the corner uh, that led to the second goal. Solskjaer basically changed the game, I think. Most of United's good chances came after he came on. So, I mean, if you ever ask for a pointless answer for naming players in these two teams, the two that I never remember were on the bench were, for United, Jonathan Greening, who is a Champions League winner. Um, Obviously, everyone Focuses on David May historically. Um, and on the Bayern bench was the all time top international goal scorer, Ali Daei, the Iranian.
1: Sir Alex's substitutions proving crucial. We asked listeners if they were the best ever. Loads of people coming back with suggestions. John Sand says Mario Götze in the 2014 World Cup final. Leo Katoni with Recoba against Brescia in that famous game. A couple of screamers, but of course, wasn't quite the same magnitude of match. Connor. Says Henrik Larsen in the 2006 Champions League final, which is a, a great shout. Uh, Tim Krul in the semi final of the World Cup, says Alan Grey. So right, yeah, brought on just for the penalties and decisively so by Louis Van Gaal. Andrew Lang, who mentions Ali McCoyst, who comes on in the Scottish Cup final after injury and scores an incredible overhead kick to win it for Rangers against Celtic. The weird thing Wasn't about that, that, that film is. That was the film we when, watched the other week. <laughs> yeah, when Hollywood had a go at it. He was, Ali McCoy is playing a a character who comes on in the cup final against Rangers. Spoiler. And doesn't score a bicycle kick. Mm. It's bizarre. And one more, uh, Simon Carter, best substitution ever when Max Rushton replaced ACG. No, I can't even joke about it, says Simon Carter. Well, that's, that's harsh. There you go. Well, magnificent stuff from Sir Alex Ferguson and his substitutes. And Man United, an incredible campaign. And Bayern, for all that feeling of a destiny, of a punishment from the gods or whatever it was, a cataclysm, just the woodwork away from taking what surely would have been a decisive lead twice in the dying stages.
0: Yeah, just one more word on Bayern. Um, first of all, I think in Germany a lot of people could not believe that they'd lost because Bayern had this legend, if you will, or this this, this self-myth of being the team that always comes back, that gets lucky towards the latter stages, doozle Bayern you know as it goes the, the lucky Bayern and of course they were anything but but to make matters worse and this I think is often forgotten they still had to play their cup final against Werder Bremen and they managed to lose that on penalties with Mateus um, missing a pen and I think Effenberg as well and that was Raffi, an unbelievable game they would be outdone game.
2: by Leverkusen no? Leverkusen in a few years time would would trump that in quite spectacular fashion
0: Yes, but then they lost against um, Real Madrid in a way that was not nearly as traumatic, I think, as far as the Champions League final is concerned. Of course, I mean, some people said they were the better side on the night, but Zidane had other ideas.
1: We'll hear about all of that when we get to that final. For now, though, let's uh, salute two teams that gave us an absolutely incredible football match and... uh, close this section with Alex Denver who says have you all noticed the Middlesbrough link with your Champions League final series finalists from 95 to 2002 all then went on to Borough this is true Reitziger in 95 Ravanelli in 96 97 it was Boxage. in 98 it was Carambeau Greening in 99 Mendieta Caranca Jeremy and Carabell in 2000 again Mendieta in 2001 and Caranca in 2002 that's extraordinary amazing
2: Imagine if they'd kept that
1: going. Well, indeed. Well, that's it then for Champions League 98-99. We'll be moving on to the year 2000 in our next edition. But coming up next in today's show, it's our own dramatic finale provided, of course, by the quiz. Daniel against Julian in a general knowledge round that has already derailed the tournament hopes of so many of the brightest and best. And Raphael Honigstein. Welcome back, everybody. So, a semi-final with Alvaro Romeo awaits for someone, but who the contenders? Daniel Storey, who answered four out of five correctly on current Premier League grounds, and has a two-point lead over Julien Laurent, who could only answer two questions correctly on France at the 2000 European Championships. Daniel, you're up first with the general knowledge. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. Question one. What are Alf Common? David, Jack, Diego Maradona and Ronaldo, the Brazilian one, the only players to have done in football history.
6: Um so our Alf- four players they've all done something and these oh, four are the only is it break the world transfer record twice?
1: It is. Correct. Question 2. Michael Robinson sadly passed away this week. He'd been both a player and a broadcaster in Spain, but which was the Spanish club that he played for? Oh. Um, Athletic Bilbao? No, it was Osasuna. Question three. Which Ballon d'Or winner does this career path belong to? Valenciennes, Club Bruges, Marseille, Milan, Bayern Munich, Bordeaux, Gangon, and Saint-Pierroise? Uh, Jean-Pierre Papin. It's correct. Question four. What do the following have in common? Laurent Blanc in 1998, Henri Camara in 2002, Ang yong Wan in 2002 as well, and Ilyan Mansis also in 2002.
6: And is it golden goal scorers in the World Cup?
1: It is. Question five then. And getting a point here, Daniel, would mean the Jules won't be able to match you. So this is absolutely crucial. Question five. Nine men have won the English top flight as both a player and a manager. Which of them won the league
6: most recently? Uh, Player and manager. Uh, um, The only guess I've got is Kenny Dalgleish. Well, it's the right answer, Daniel
1: Storey. You are into the semi-finals. Which no. is a bit awkward because we've still got to ask Jules his general knowledge well, Surely
4: questions. not. Surely we don't have to, do we? Well,
1: if we I can't beat to. him.
4: No, if I can't beat him. No? Oh, not, for our know, listeners, just... I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll ask them. Maybe Daniel would like to have a pop at yours as well.
4: <laughs> yeah, let's go.
6: <laughs> okay. Jules uh, gets first, want... go. Come on. Yeah,
1: let's see who gets the first. Right. General knowledge then. Question one. With which club did Johan Cruyff win his final league title as a player? Feyenoord. Yes, Jaws. Question two. Which club plays at the Veltins Arena?
4: Um, I don't know. Veltins.
1: Right. Right. Question three. Which Ballon d'Or winner does this career path belong to? Borussia Mönchengladbach. Bayern Munich. Inter. Bayern Munich again. New York Metro stars. Lothar Matos. That's right. Question four. Two stadiums have hosted the final match of the World Cup twice. Which two are they?
4: So, the Azteca. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Olympic Stadium in Berlin.
1: No, it was the Maracaná in Rio. Of course, yeah. Right. Question five, Celtic in 1967, Star Bucharest in 1986, Red Star Belgrade in 1991 and Marseille in 1993. What do those victories have in common?
4: What other than being in the European Cup.
1: Well, the, those are all victories in the European Cup. That's yeah. true. They're all basically teams winning the European Cup or Champions there's League. There's something
4: else. In, there's some, I need to find yeah, something else. something
1: that makes those four clubs particular. I was the
4: first time ever in the country.
1: Yeah, and it remains, in fact, they remain the only clubs oh, from those sorry. respective countries to have won the European Cup or Champions League. Okay, well, sure. Jules, you've been a worthy contestant. and a delight He was very strong, I have to say. Can you see anyone stopping him, Jules? And if so, who?
4: On the other side of the draw... Coxie, isn't it? Coxie. I think, for me, that was the final I had, I had uh, bet on from the beginning. But, but Coxie will get cocky in the final and Story will win the final.
1: <laughs> right. I'm not sure. I think, I think Coxie had a bit of a wake-up call back in round one with that pretty disastrous general knowledge performance. We'll see, though. As it stands, Daniel, you'll be back with us in the semi-final against Alvaro Romeo. Briefly, any noises or words you'd like to express your
6: emotions with? Uh, no, I've realised uh, that they can be recorded for posterity, so I'll stay silent, I think.
1: Well, there you go. Julian Aron departs the competition... Slightly better in the general knowledge round, right? but still, I mean, a great performance from, from Daniel, but still, Julianne.
3: Well, I think you've got to be disappointed. You've got though. to say, he chose a special subject from quite a long time ago, and I think, you know, you've got to admire that in the modern quiz and game, to be honest. A lot of people are going for very recent or small special subjects.
1: Pat Nevin went for IAC 70 to 73, that's 50 years ago, and he got five out of five. Jules got two, <laughs> two out of five on a tournament that, that not, we were. I'm all not saying he can for, remember <laughs>
3: stuff from 2000, I'm just saying I admire him for trying
1: all right then hey uh, you're up next James in the third quarterfinal I haven't chosen a topic taking yet. on Jack Lang
3: what's your specialty yeah. subject oh. yep.
2: no I need to pick it today and get that farm t- shots I mean it, it might it might be a tactic sort of leave it very late for, for Nick Miller to compile the uh, questions and you know hope it works but you know again Jack and I are very much using the kind of furbitia, you know the, the, the kind of mm-hmm. cunning to just get us by in this
3: competition Well, you've gone to a Retiro in the countryside, so you're taking it very seriously. (laughs) Yes, my monastic preparation.
1: (laughs) Very nice. All right, well, Daniel will be back with us on Sunday alongside Matt Davis-Adams and Michael Cox when we'll be running up any news and also having a look back at Premier League Season 3, 1994-95. As for you guys, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Anything you want to drop in at this point?
2: Uh, Well, the other cup finals of 98-99 are worth checking out as well because you have the last cup-winners cup final, which was what Lazio against uh, the Mallorca team that put out Chelsea. And you also have Parma beating Marseille, one of the most one-sided finals you will see. um, And a great final goal from Enrico Chiesa as well. So check
1: it out. End of an era, that, for European cup football.
2: Yeah, the last time an Italian team won the UEFA Cup.
1: Rafa, thank you so much for being with us today. Painful though it was. Thank you as well, Duncan and James and you, listener. We'll be back at the weekend with another show we mentioned. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye.